Good morning, my name is Johnny. Um, I'll give you a moment just to find that spot in Luke chapter 13 that you might have lost as you were standing up singing. I'm one of the pastors here at church. Uh, John McIndoe, the lead pastor, is on holidays at the moment. I believe he is uh, safe. I haven't really heard from him in the middle of Central Asia for a couple of weeks. Hopefully, he'll be back in the office tomorrow. Um, But if there's anything you want to talk about or things that you want to send through to John, just email him or leave it with us today and we'll pass it on. Let me lead us in prayer uh, before we come to God's word. Father, we're not asking for magic or some sort of... um, just because we have the Bible open that our lives are going to get better. But we ask that because you know us personally and you know the situations in our lives, we ask that you would take uh, your word that we're going to look at this morning and your spirit would personally apply it to us in our situations. Um, Help us to be listening. Help us not to be uh, fighting against what your spirit might be doing in us even as we consider your word. Uh, But teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Or at least that's sometimes how we'd like to think it works. You know that road user who out of nowhere cuts in on your lane and forces you to slam on your brakes and then they speed off through that yellow light leaving you stuck in the red in the middle of traffic? There's a sense of justice to it, isn't there, when you go around the bend and you see them pulled over by the highway patrolman just around there, and you feel a bit better about life and things. Or on the positive side of things, you like to think that maybe it's the conscientious, nice guy or nice girl in the office who succeeds and who'll go on to have a happy and long, fulfilling life. But that's just not how it goes down all the time, is it? That's not how the story always goes. Because some of those who cheat win. They don't catch every athlete who takes performance-enhancing drugs. And there are some wicked people at the helm of wicked regimes who stay there. While some of the best people we know, some of the best people we love in our church, in our families, in our lives, they suffer and they can't seem to catch a break. That the universe makes good things happen to good people and that it makes bad things happen to bad people is not so much a Christian thought as it is an ancient Indian idea. Karma, which is a big concept in Hinduism and in Buddhism and in Taoism, and it's, it seems to be this thing where good deeds and good intent are supposed to contribute to good karma, happiness and good things happening in your life, while the opposite being also true, bad deeds and bad intent leading to bad karma and future suffering, which is quite different to how the Bible seems to describe reality under the sun. Uh, much of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament touches on this very annoying situation And it's the complaint that it's the wicked who seem to be prospering, while the righteous doesn't. And you might remember the book of Job in the Old Testament. 
the main character in that story, uh, is a righteous man who you read about, he loses everything. And for seemingly no reason whatsoever from his point of view. And for most of the book, uh, Job's friends are there and they're working with this worldview that if bad things have happened to Job, it's because at some level Job must have done something to deserve it. It's Job's fault. That's why God's punishing him. Our gut tells us that there should be some sort of relationship between sin and suffering. But our experience is that that relationship is complicated. It's not as black and white as perhaps we'd like it to be. That calmer way of looking at the world is quite pervasive. You know, the, the, the whole what goes around comes around. It's a bit superstitious and it's very pervasive. It was in the ancient world. It was in Jesus' day. And you can get traces of it even, even now. You bump into it still. If you look in our passage for this morning, uh, Luke chapter 13, and you look at verse 1, it seems like some travesty has just happened in recent times near them. There's been a massacre of some sort. Uh, Look at chapter 13 in Luke, verse 1. It says this, Now there were some present at that time uh, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Uh, That's not a normal thing to do. Uh, It's quite a brutal thing. What they're probably referring to is Pilate's, uh, the the governor of the time, his violent actions against the Jews in Galilee. None of the Jews were particularly fond of Roman occupation, but the Galileans were known apparently at the time to be especially vocal in their um, civil disorder in a pretty feisty sort of way. And so perhaps this is an incident of the governor at the time, stomping on some heads to get his way. So a probable backstory to what's happened here is that at a Passover festival, I'm I'm assuming, because that's one of the festivals where all the non-Jews could participate as well, they could be a part of it. While these priests and worshippers and people coming to temple were doing their thing, perhaps Pilate has sent in his goons with orders to kill even as they're doing their sacrifices. And so Galilean blood, human blood, is mixed in with this animal sacrifice, that that sort of blood, on the altar in the temple. Here's the governor stamping out trouble. It's pretty brutal. Uh, It's very wrong, no matter how you look at it. The equivalent of Pilate's men would have been like the police of the day. And there they are being sent in to raid a religious center to attack with shoot-to-kill orders against priests and people who probably would have been unarmed. A terrible thing. And uh, government-sanctioned. And if karma is a thing, then perhaps you could argue or try to argue that the the people who died, those who suffered, the victims of this tragedy, well, maybe they had it coming. That might have been a popular assumption at the time, actually. That for some reason, somehow, these people who were caught up in the action, their past actions were so guilty that in this they're being judged. And so it's okay. Look what Jesus says, verse 2. Jesus answered, 
Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. Down in verse 4. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Now, we don't know what happened with this incident at the Tower of Siloam. Uh, Maybe it was dodgy workmanship, too much sand, not enough cement. Maybe it was an earthquake. Maybe it was just some freak accident. We don't know. But it seems, for some reason, 18 people lost their lives. And Jesus is very clear here, isn't he? The, the people who died in Siloam or these Galileans, they were no worse than anyone else. It wasn't because they were more or particularly sinful or that they were any more guilty than anyone else that they suffered and died the way that they did. On the flip side, not only does he say that they were not worse, he seems to say, he effectively says, you are no better or safer. Did you notice uh, verses 3 to 5? If you start reading from the second half of verse 2, I'll reread some of those verses. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. All those 18 who died, do you think they were more guilty than all those others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Just like them. In the same boat, you're no better. You, you will also perish unless, unless you repent. So what's it mean to repent? You might remember it's literally about turning. You're heading in one direction, and if you repent, you start heading in a different direction. You're changing. It's usually because you realize you're going the wrong way, or that you don't want to go. You sort of see where you're going to end up, and you don't want to go there. Now, The word repent is now used almost exclusively in religious contexts. You're technically repenting every time you're even doing some normal things in life. You're repenting every time you change lanes in traffic. You're repenting every time you do a three-point turn. We have a career change. Change of trajectory is what we're talking about. And most of us don't realize when we're heading the wrong way. I suspect this original crowd around Jesus on the day he said this would have been very surprised to hear Jesus say to them that them standing there that day, they're in the same situation, the same category as those people who Pilate had killed or who that tower had fallen on. Because you think about those people and you think, oh man, that's, that's terrible. How, how, how awful for those people. And Jesus is saying, no, it's the same for you. When he looks at this crowd, he sees exactly the same thing. He thinks exactly the same way. Those things were terrible tragedies, and we're fine, aren't we? No one's out to get us. There's no tower falling on us. There's no immediate tragedy in my life. But Jesus says, you're in the same boat. You're no better, because unless you turn around, you too will perish just like they did. Even though nothing is obviously wrong except for those things that are that we don't notice. 
Now, Jesus personalizes it for you. It's like he's saying, whenever you see these tragedies and the destruction of life, even in other people's lives, when you flick on the news, when, when you see these things happening, instead of rationalizing that maybe somehow they deserve what was coming, or instead of thinking that because we're so far away that we're immune, what those things are supposed to do is remind you that this world is under curse. And death is a symptom that should get us to wake up and deal with what's wrong. All is not fine in this present order of things. And the world groans under the weight of sin. If you don't only care to listen. Even though it's a fine day outside and it's Mother's Day and we happen to be living in the comfortable suburbs of a country like Australia. The world's groaning. And the story that the Bible paints is that the world's been broken because of human decision to walk away from God, cut him out from how we want to do things. And in our very first disobedience, we're told death enters our world, our work becomes hard, and the ground is cursed, and our relationships are frustrated. And so subsequent generations have been born into a world where we've made up the rules and not God to our own harm. Think about it, just about every empire has crumbled from within, given enough time. We are the problem. And we're on a timer because God is patient, but he's not going to wait forever. If you look at the story that Jesus tells next in verse 6. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. That unfruitful fig tree, I don't know if you're joining the dots there, but that unfruitful fig tree is us and our world. Belonging to God, who's the Lord and the owner, but consistently failing to produce the fruit that is after Comes back the first year, nothing. Comes back the second year, nothing. Comes back the third year, still nothing. So he gives this tree a final chance, one more year to bear some fruit. Which, if it doesn't, it's going to get uprooted. It's going to get cut down for the waste of space that it's been. And I think with this parable, Jesus is implying that God's patience will come to an end. If our world is that tree and we're in that final year, perhaps blissfully ignorant, perhaps enjoying the sunshine and the rain and the view on the hillside and the breeze, but not doing what he wants us to do, if we're doing that, his patience is going to run out. There is something worse than having a tower fall down on you. There is something worse than the terrible things that we do to each other. And that something worse 
is that we might meet God unforgiven. He who created us and who sustains us and keeps our heart beating and gives us our every breath, we forget to nurture that most basic relationship between creature and creator. We don't even know him and we live as if we're doing fine without him. But God doesn't want to be ignored. That's a consistent message, him talking to us. He doesn't want to be ignored. He doesn't want you to be ripped off because you've made poor choices. And what you see in this story about the fig tree is this warning, which sounds like a threat, but you only warn people who you care about. You warn people who you're giving time. You warn people who you want to see them turn around. So at the end of the day, this passage, I think, is about repentance. It's about turning. And I wonder if, sitting here today, you've done that. If you've made that conscious choice to turn your life around. From however you were living, to be following and be reconciled to the God who offers this forgiveness. Even though you might not have known him, even though you were living without him. That's what Jesus came to do. His whole life and his work is about enabling a reconciliation between you and God. And I wonder if that's something that you want. If you want that, then why not start today? Come and talk to us. Come and talk to the person who invited you here today. and We can get you started on that road back to God. Maybe you're someone here this morning who at some point in your life, you remember making that conscious decision to turn your life around. You know, you've done that and you started following Jesus. Maybe that was years ago. And you know in the meantime that you've grown somewhat cooler, somewhat more distant from the God that you used to love. For whatever reason. And so this morning I'm asking you, Maybe you're feeling the Spirit of God convicting your heart. Tapping you on the shoulder. Telling you that maybe you need to do something about it. Even today. That you need to repent and draw close to Him again. Would you pray? Those of you who've known Him, would you pray to Him who you've known, even in the stillness of your heart in this moment? Would you pray and ask that it would help you to turn your life around? Would you recommit to following Jesus with everything that you've got? Do that now, would you? Just in the stillness of your heart. Come and talk to us afterwards if you like. You can tell us, you can tell us what that's going to mean for you. You can tell us how God's brought you here. But if that's you, don't resist what the Spirit might be doing in your life. Maybe you're someone who's been walking with Jesus and you're still walking with Jesus and you know don't you from experience that repentance isn't just a one-off thing the big R repentance is, is significant and you've done that it's, it's where you've turned your life around and you're saying I follow Jesus and you're thankful for it but it's the little R repentance that you've got to continue consciously doing every day every week turning over more and more of the corners 
in our lives to be lived in obedience to Jesus as he shines his light into these corners that we let him or don't let him in. So, brother, sister, is there any area of your life that you know you're hanging on to, that you haven't turned over to the rule and to the sanctification of Jesus? He'd love for you to be fruitful. But in order for that to happen, maybe you need to let him be Lord of even that. The shape of the world that the Bible describes isn't circular, as if there's some karmic retribution and what comes around goes around. No, the Bible's story is about transformation and grace. About going from curse to restoration because of the forgiveness of our God and because he inspires our repentance. In closing, I'd ask, would you pray with me these words, these sentiments from Romans 12? Uh, Let's pray. Father, this morning, in view of your mercy to us, in warning us, and in giving us Jesus, help us not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, in its brokenness and in its sin. But would you transform us by the renewing of our minds? Father, we offer ourselves to you. May you find us holy and pleasing in your sight, because of Jesus. Amen.